Well, open your Bibles with me to Philippians chapter 4 as we return in our study to Paul's letter to the Philippians. And I'm sure that I don't have to tell you that we are living in a rapidly increasing anti-Christian culture. The blogs and the news channels have been flooded this week with uh, comments on Arizona's Senate Bill 1062. The bill was drafted in order to protect the religious freedom of business owners whose religious convictions wouldn't allow them to take an active role or active participation in the celebration of homosexuality. America has witnessed numerous cases in the recent months in which the so-called civil rights of homosexuals have been pitted against the religious freedoms of conscientious Christians. In Gresham, Oregon, bakers Aaron and Melissa Klein declined to make a wedding cake for a lesbian couple. They apologized politely and explained that the celebration of homosexuality violated their religious convictions as Christians. Well, the lesbian couple filed a complaint with the Department of Justice and publicized uh, via social media what they believed to be discrimination. And it wasn't long before the owners of the bakery were receiving threatening letters and phone calls and emails from those in their community including those that wished sickness and physical harm and death upon them and their children. The Kleins fought the legal battle, but eventually lost when the Oregon Bureau of Labor and Industries ruled that their decision was discriminatory, and the Kleins have had to close their business as a result. Another instance occurred when a photographer in New Mexico declined to shoot a wedding for another lesbian couple. Elaine Huguenin said that she would be happy to provide other photographic services to homosexuals, like, for example, the the shooting of portraits, um, but said that she was uncomfortable with celebrating something she believed to be sinful and recommended another photographer for them to choose. But despite that, the New Mexico Supreme Court found her guilty of violating the couple's human rights. Baron L. Stutzman is a florist in Washington State, who had been serving a homosexual couple whom she had considered her friends for 10 years at her flower shop. And when they asked her to provide floral arrangements for their quote-unquote wedding, Stutzman responded by tenderly grasping her friend's hand, looking him in the eye and saying, I'm sorry, I can't do your wedding because of my relationship with Jesus Christ. She reports that after that they hugged each other and that he left the store and she thought that was the end of the story. But the couple had taken to Facebook to spread the word of her so-called discrimination, and her refusal was reported to the authorities. And despite serving this couple for 10 years and simply refusing to celebrate their sin, she's now being sued by the Washington State Attorney General. And so situations like these have led Arizona lawmakers to draft this bill, Senate Bill 1062, which was designed to provide legal protection for business owners who don't want to be compelled to celebrate that which violates their convictions and their conscience. But this week, that bill was vetoed by Arizona Governor Jan Brewer, who declared that passing it would legalize discrimination. Now, some of you are saying, well, Mike, I don't like that that's happening any more than you do. But that doesn't really affect me. I'm not a baker. I'm not a photographer. I'm not a florist. I don't have to worry about that in as much as it bothers me. And I understand that. And I also don't mean to imply that the sum and substance of Christianity is all about stemming the tide of homosexuality in our society. But where these examples do intersect with our lives is precisely here. They provide us with incontrovertible evidence 
that our society is racing toward secularism at breakneck speed, if it's not already there. We're approaching a time in our culture when the exclusive and absolute claims of Christianity simply will not be tolerated. A time when any public expression of our faith in the Christ of Scripture, anything but an enthusiastic celebration of the moral bankruptcy of contemporary secularism, will be derided as archaic and primitive, ridiculed as narrow-minded and bigoted, and actively persecuted as unjust and discriminatory. In an op-ed article in the Washington Times responding to the vetoing of the Arizona bill, one writer, herself a homosexual, writes this, This vetoing is an effort to condition the public into automatically equating faith with bigotry, to make faith in the public square illegal and dangerous. They're coming for you, faithful follower of Christ. They're coming for the church. And so the question is, in the midst of that kind of devoted hostility to your Savior and to His Word, how will you be able to stand firm against the pressures that are sure to come if the Lord tarries? How will you be able to hold your ground? How will you be able to suffer hardship as a good soldier of Christ Jesus, as Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 3. Well, that is precisely the question that Paul has been answering in Philippians chapter 4. There in the Roman province of Macedonia, a veritable center for the celebration of the pagan culture that had dominated that day, these dear people at the church of Philippi had been rescued from the domain of darkness and been transferred to the kingdom of God's beloved Son through the preaching of the apostle Paul and his companions. They who had gloried in their Roman citizenship had now been enrolled on the register of the citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And as surely as the light shines in the darkness, and as surely as the darkness hates the light, these Philippians, whose greatest allegiance was no longer to Lord Caesar, but to Lord Jesus, these Philippians began to face the threat of opposition from their pagan neighbors. At the very heart of this letter in Philippians 1 27 to 30, Paul speaks of the Philippians' opponents, verse 28. He speaks of the inevitability of their suffering in verse 29. And they're experiencing the same conflict that Paul had himself experienced in verse 30. And in chapter 1, verse 27, he calls them literally to conduct themselves as citizens in a manner worthy of the gospel. And a paramount way in which they'll show themselves to be dutiful citizens of the kingdom of heaven is to stand firm, he says in verse 27, in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, in no way alarmed by your opponents. They are to be good soldiers of Christ Jesus, to hold their ground and to not yield an inch in their commitment to Christ and his gospel. And Paul resumes that very same burden in chapter 4, verse 1, when he exhorts them again, Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and crown, in this way stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. And so in the recent weeks, we've been examining this exhortation to spiritual stability and the following means that Paul lists as to how the people of God are going to go about pursuing and attaining to this true biblical steadfastness. 
And with this feel of resolute conviction, with this feel of intransigent determination, you might expect that the ways in which the people of God are to stand firm, to be, to be characterized by an unbending sharpness, a furrowed brow and clenched fists. But paradoxically, we've been learning that the church stands most firmly and most resolutely against the evil influences of the world when the people of God are the most yielding and accommodative of one another. We've seen from the way that Paul deals with the disagreement of Euodia and Syntyche in verses 2 and 3 that spiritual stability and biblical steadfastness come as a result of a diligent devotion to unity within the body of Christ. The strength of any army consists fundamentally in the unity of its soldiers. If the soldiers are all out doing their own thing, advancing at their own pace, fighting in their own way, and at some times maybe even fighting against each other, defeat is certain. But a well-trained army presents a united front, fights with one mind and one accord as one man. And in that same way, disunity in the church is a grave threat to our stability and steadfastness. If the people of God are to stand firm in the Lord amidst the spiritual battle that we find ourselves in, we must be diligently devoted to preserving the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, Ephesians 4.3. And the last time that we were together, we learned that we must also be devoted to an unyielding pursuit of joy in the Lord. And that only makes sense. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you, the Apostle James asks? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? Indeed, we want and we don't have, so we bicker and we quarrel with one another. But Paul says that the answer to that is not to eliminate all pleasures from our lives, to seek to want nothing but to feast the appetites of our souls on the supreme pleasure that is to be found in the Lord himself. The antidote to disunity is a relentless pursuit of joy in the Lord because when we seek all of our pleasure and all of our joy in him, we'll be satisfied and we'll no longer feel the need to quarrel and bicker about things which, if we could have them, wouldn't bring us as much pleasure as the Lord himself does anyway. So if we would be marked by the kind of spiritual stability that Paul calls us to as the people of God, we must relentlessly pursue our joy in the Lord. And this morning we come to a third command in this series of imperatives which comprise the means of biblical steadfastness. We must be diligently devoted to unity within the body of Christ. We must relentlessly pursue our joy in the Lord. And third, we must be marked by an eminent and demonstrable gentleness of spirit. And I draw that principle from our text this morning, Philippians chapter 4, verse 5. Paul says, Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. And that imperative flows directly from the previous one. If we're committed to rejoicing in the Lord always, at all times and in all circumstances, then we will be characterized by gentleness to all people. Other people will experience our own rejoicing in the Lord, not merely as they observe us singing praise and worship songs, but when that joy in Christ has so satisfied our souls that it overflows into demonstrable gentleness to everyone we come in contact with. 
And friends, it is very difficult to overestimate the importance of gentleness of spirit in the Christian life. Martin Lloyd-Jones calls this command from the Apostle Paul one of the highest demands of the Christian gospel. He says, I think we can safely say that the gospel, in a sense, never calls us to a greater height than it does here with regard to our life, our conduct, and practice. Charles Simeon, the great British pastor of the late 18th and early 19th century, wrote, It is by a conformity to this latter precept of gentleness, no less than by his obedience to the former to rejoice always, that the true Christian will be distinguished. In fact, he says, this precept enters very deeply into the divine life, and it is only in proportion as its influence is exhibited in our lives that we have any satisfactory evidence of our conversion to God. And so we're going to take the rest of this morning to examine this essential Christian virtue. And similar to last time, we're going to hang our thoughts on three supporting hooks as we seek to understand and apply this command to demonstrable gentleness. First, we'll consider the command itself, examining the nature of this gentleness to which we're called. Second, we'll consider the scope of this command. And third, we'll consider the ground and incentive for the command. So the command itself, the scope, and then the ground. That's our roadmap for this morning. Well, first then, let us consider the command itself, the nature of this gentle spirit, which we are called to demonstrate at all times to all people. Again, Philippians 4, verse 5, let your gentle spirit be made known to all men. That's the New American Standard updated version. The older NAS has let your forbearance or your forbearing spirit be made known to all men. The ESV says, let your reasonableness be made known to everyone. And the Holman Christian Standard Bible has, let your graciousness be known to everyone. Now, why can't the translators agree? It's because this Greek word, epiakes, is notoriously difficult to capture in in a single English word. One commentator says that the word has a richer meaning than any single English word can convey. Another says there's not a single word in the English language that fully expresses the meaning of the original. And so so part of the difficulty that, that we have in pursuing this essential Christian quality of gentleness, this epia case, is really putting our finger on the number of concepts that it encompasses. Let me read to you some of the words that the commentators have used to describe this concept. And it's a long list. Uh, so bear with me and try to take these in and, and let this, this picture of, of this concept develop in your mind as I, I list some of these synonyms. See if you can put your arms around it. It's gentleness, graciousness, forbearance, patience, sweet reasonableness, Mildness, leniency, yieldedness, kindness, charitableness, being considerate, magnanimity, big-heartedness, and generosity. All of these concepts are at play in this one word. And though we don't have time to expound on each one of them, it'll be beneficial for us to select a number of them and amplify them a bit. Again, so that we we can come to have a firm grasp on the nature of this duty to which we are called. So for this remainder of this first point, I'm going to have five characteristics of epi case. 
Five characteristics of the gentleness that is to dominate our demeanor as followers of Christ. First, there's what I would call a reasonable flexibility, a reasonable flexibility. It's interesting to note that in secular Greek, when this word was used of someone in authority, it referred to someone who exercised a discerning leniency, someone who, when he was faced with a legal issue, and when he perceived that a strict application of the letter of the law would lead to common sense injustice, this person could discern a better course and would, as one writer put it, moderate the inflexible severity of wrath. It was a discerning leniency. This was not someone who was simply unjust and would set aside the law at his whim, but it was a reasonable flexibility. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this person had the capacity to differentiate between what is really of vital importance and what is not, to stand like a rock by the things that are vital, and to be reasonable about the things that are not. In our Q&A time, we talked about that. On the Friday night when Phil and I and, and Jen and Darlene got together and answered some questions, we talked about the importance of distinguishing bad doctrine from heresy, the reality that not every issue of disagreement is a first-level issue. And it's the one who is, is reasonable, who has this discerning leniency about him that can discern what's vital and what's not, what's essential and what's not, what do I die for and what do I bend for? So this is someone who is not so inflexible, unbending, and unyielding that he would insist on a person's detriment for the sake of mere formalities. And I'm tempted to say more about that, but for the sake of time, I'll just ask you, can, can you see what great application even just that has for us in the church? What great need there is for us to be marked by a reasonable flexibility. There are some of you and there are some in this church who conduct yourselves in relationships with others in the church that simply cannot abide it if something isn't done according to a particular policy or according to a particularly preferred method. We've always done it that way before. This is just my way of doing it. It's got to be done that way. You consistently insist on your own way, and you make others' lives difficult until they bend to your direction. You're the kind of person, if this is you, that other people are always accommodating and pacifying, lest there be some needless altercation between you. But you need to put that attitude away, dear friends. Let your gentleness be evident to all men. Be mild, kind, and as long as it doesn't violate the Word of God, be yielding, be reasonably persuadable, be reasonably flexible. And secondly, there's a temperate gentleness that pervades the disposition of one who is epi case, a temperate gentleness. And you know these people. These are the people about whom you say, he's just a gentle man, or, or she is just a tender, warm, and welcoming woman. There's a softness to these people, a, a tenderness about them. They always seem to know when it's appropriate to be soft-spoken. There never seems to be a harsh word on their lips. It seems almost impossible to frustrate them. There's a, a coolness and a calmness to their spirit, and they seem to have a, a calming influence on those who are around them. The gentle person is someone that you would feel very comfortable with about things, about speaking with, about the things that are troubling you in your Christian life. Someone you'd feel very comfortable sharing your struggles with, your trials with, your temptations with. This isn't someone who's going to be abrasive and dismissive and, and prickly. 
Someone who's just going to smack you on the shoulder, tell you to suck it up and move on. This is someone who's going to be tender and warm and nurturing. Are you that person? Is there a tender and, and warm and nurturing disposition, welcoming disposition about you? When your brothers and sisters think of you, do they think of you as someone who can tenderly shepherd them through their struggles? Are you someone that they think of and say, there's no way I'm going to speak to him about that? He's got all the gentleness and grace of a chainsaw. (laughs) As I talk about this, some of you guys, you men, are saying, oh, Mike, would you put a lid on all that mushy, gushy talk already? I'm a man. I'm brusque and I'm brash and I'm gruff. I don't go for all that touchy-feely stuff you're talking about. Oh, well, let me remind you of the man's man who endured beatings and imprisonments and lashes and stonings and who went without food and without water and without clothing and who, when his boat was shipwrecked, spent a night and a day in the ocean clinging to a piece of the wreckage in order to fight for his own survival. This man was a gritty man. This was a man's man. And this man wrote in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, but we proved to be gentle among you. Like a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. Friend, are you marked by such a temperate and gentle disposition that your brothers and sisters feel as safe and as cared for in coming to you with their problems as a nursing infant feels in the arms of its mother? I want all you bristly, abrasive, manly men to remember that your Lord Jesus was the manliest man who ever walked this earth. He literally went through hell on the cross, absorbed the unmixed fury of the wrath of Almighty God exercised on his innocent soul, voluntarily submitted to the grave, and three days later, on his own authority, took his own life up again and came out on the other side. And that man... Your Savior was gentle enough to take a little child in his arms, gentle enough to liken himself to a a shepherd who tenderly cares for his own sheep, gentle enough, as Vila read for us this morning, gentle enough to invite all those who were weak and heavy laden under the burden of their sin to, to find rest in him. For, he said, I am gentle and humble in heart. Well, third, the man or woman who is Epi a case who manifests the gentleness that Paul calls us to in Philippians 4, 5 is marked by patient forbearance. Patient forbearance. And an easy way to see this nuance is to observe what the terms the Word of God contrasts this with. So in 1 Timothy 3, Paul gives the, the moral and spiritual qualifications for those who would serve in the office of an elder. And in verse 3, he says that such men must not be addicted to wine, nor be pugnacious, but gentle, but epia case, same word. A pugnacious man loves a fight. The older translations rendered this Greek word a striker, one who strikes, a basher. If anything or anyone gets in this man's way, it's his first instinct to strike and to bash. And alongside pugnacious, the Greek dictionaries include the word bully in the entry for this word. And then in Titus 3.2, 
Paul gives directives not just for the elder or overseer, but for every member of the body of Christ when he says, remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. You see, where the pugnacious man is ready to strike or bash whatever got in his way, here the man who is not marked by gentleness is eager to malign the person who does him wrong. Someone sins against this man or mistreats him, and his first instinct is to speak evil of that person. A gentle answer might turn away wrath. But this man is ready with a harsh word that stirs up the fire rather than puts it out. But the gentleman isn't so easily offended. His first instinct isn't to to bash physically or to bash verbally. He's marked by a humble, patient forbearance. John Calvin said that this man is not easily moved by injuries. And especially in the context in which the Philippians found themselves facing both the, the pressures of persecution from without and the cancer of disunity from within. This word speaks of the one who is able to submit to injustice, disgrace, and maltreatment without hatred, without malice, and trusting God in spite of it all. Martin Lloyd-Jones puts it helpfully. He wrote, These people have a control and mastery over themselves so that though darts are thrown, they do not find a sensitive place. So that when these darts come, you can somehow receive them and not worry about them. It's long-suffering, able to bear and forbear, not easily offended. I ask again, is this you, my friends? Have you so pursued and so found your joy in the Lord? Verse 4, that when these darts of sinful offense are thrown at you, they don't find a sensitive place and you can be gentle. Verse 5, have you gotten a, a sensible and sober view of your own sinfulness such that there's something of Paul's confession in your own heart that I'm the chief of sinners and so I'm always getting better than I deserve even when people wrong me. I'm getting better than I deserve. Or are you pugnacious? Quick to take into account a wrong suffered. You say, you don't understand, Mike. I'm not worried that they're offending me. I'm worried that they're offending God and his word. That's why I'm harsh and brutish and cantankerous and needlessly offensive. And yet Paul told Timothy that the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, and with what? With gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition. And that leads very naturally into the next characteristic, number four. There is humble surrender. Humble surrender. And what I mean by that is that the gentleman humbly and willingly surrenders his own rights. Even in secular usage, this word had this connotation. The the pagan philosopher Aristotle said that this word described, quote, the one who by choice and habit does what is equitable and who does not stand on his rights unduly, but is content to receive a smaller share, although he has the law on his side. And knowing that context, Paul takes that term and applies it, and the other New Testament writers take that term and apply it and lay it upon the people of God as their duty. One who would not 
stand on his rights unduly, but would be content to receive a smaller share than he's due. And how relevant that is for us in the church. Some of the most challenging, difficult, discouraging, wearying meetings that I've been a part of have been those where professing believers refuse to patiently forbear sins committed against them because the other person was wrong and they sinned against me and I have a right to this, that, and the other thing. Yes, pastor, I I know that love doesn't take into account a, a wrong suffered and it bears all things and it believes all things. I know that we're commanded to forgive one another just as God has forgiven us in Christ. But I was right and she was wrong. Friend, and Paul says to you, Paul says to you, why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? 1 Corinthians 6, 7, that's just an amazing thing to say. Paul's addressing the Corinthians who were embroiled in, in such a conflict with one another that they were even taking one another to court. Christians suing Christians. I mean, how much further away from conducting yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel can you get? And Paul says, no matter who wins the lawsuit, you both lose. It's already a defeat for you. And then he says, why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? How can it be that you could insist so severely on your own rights You who profess to belong to the Savior who ransomed your soul from sin and death precisely by refusing to insist on his own rights. Who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, a thing to be insisted on, but emptied himself. He was God, friends. He was absolutely sinless perfect and glorious in holiness, equal to God the Father. And with every right in the universe for him to remain in heaven and continue to enjoy and receive the incessant praise of the saints and angels, he didn't insist on his own rights, but emptied himself and became the God-man, adding the weakness of of a human nature to himself and forever. And when he was reviled, did not revile in return. And when he suffered, uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to his God who judges righteously, 1 Peter 2. The author of life died on a cross, the most shameful death that could be imagined, so that you could be free from sin and walk in righteousness. Now, how can you be saved by that gospel? And Paul says, and not rather be wronged and not rather be defrauded. You see, we don't, that's not our fleshly reasoning. We don't think like that naturally. Why not rather be defrauded? That's someone whose heart has been gripped and taken over by the gospel. That's someone who has got this Holy Spirit of God supernaturally living in him and directing him. Do you think like that? Is that your instinct? Why not rather be defrauded? That is your nature. That if you were in Christ, that is what your new nature would instinctively cause you to think. Oh, may we think that way. William Hendrickson said, the lesson which Paul teaches is that true blessedness cannot be obtained by the person who rigorously insists on whatever he regards as his just due. The Christian is the man who reasons that it is far better to suffer wrong than to inflict wrong. 
Oh, friends, where is that gospel-shaped gentleness? That sweet reasonableness that gladly yields our own rights and prefers to suffer wrong if it be for the benefit of others. That readiness, that eagerness to forgive someone who's wronged you at the very first sign of repentance. Seventy times seven. How can we, who have been forgiven a debt that we can liken to trillions upon trillions of dollars, how can we throw our brothers and sisters into the debtor's prison of our hearts for the $20 that that we are owed from them? No, Grace Life, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who surrendered the glories of heaven, his due, his rights, in exchange for the abject degradation of a cross so that he could be the servant of all. That's your Savior. That's the one whom you follow. Follow him. And quickly, number five, the one who manifests this gentleness to which we're called is also to be marked by a happy contentment, a happy contentment. It's little wonder that immediately following this section on spiritual stability, Paul takes up the subject of contentment in Philippians 4.10 to 14. Again, for the one who is relentlessly pursuing his joy in the Lord, this only makes sense. If we have fastened our affections on the glory of God revealed in the face of Christ, and if in salvation the Holy Spirit has opened our eyes to behold and feast upon that glory, where is dissatisfaction going to come from? The gentle Christian is happily content. Spurgeon says, speaking of the one who is gentle, if he can have God's face shining upon him, he cares little whether it is hills or valleys upon which he walks. Oh, while thou dost smile upon me, God of wisdom, love, and might, foes may hate and friends disown me, show thy face and all is bright. It's one of my favorite hymns. The content Christian is the gentle Christian. So what a wealth of truth is stored up in this one tiny little word, gentleness. Let me summarize all we've said by quoting our pastor, who always seems to be able to just put his finger on things. He sums it all up when he says, perhaps the best corresponding English word, and this is funny because he says the best word and then he uses like five words. (laughs) Perhaps the best corresponding English word is graciousness. The graciousness of humility, that humble graciousness that produces the patience to endure injustice, disgrace, and mistreatment without retaliation, bitterness, or vengeance. It is contentment. Gracious humility, patience, endurance, contentment. So I trust that we now better understand Paul's commands for for God's people to be dominated by a gentle and a forbearing spirit. The question that I want to ask now is, to whom are we commanded to show such gentleness? What is the scope of our evident gentleness? Now, so far, I've focused my application pretty exclusively and on purpose on how such gentleness is to manifest itself in the life of the church. And that's vitally important. As I said, if the church is to have any hope of standing firm in the Lord against the outside pressures of a hostile culture, the people of God must be devoted to dealing in gentleness with one another. 
But Paul casts a wider scope on this command. Look at Philippians 4, 5. He writes, let your gentle spirit be known to all men, to all men. And so this reasonable flexibility, this temperate gentleness, this patient forbearance, this humble and willing surrender of our own rights, this happy contentment, it's all to be made manifest not only to our family, not only to a certain group of Christian friends who it's easy for us to get along with, not even only to your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, but your gentle spirit is to be made evident and manifest to all people. And if that's the case, that means that we've got to manifest this gentleness in all the spheres of our lives before unbelievers, that we're to let our gentle spirit be evident to our families, for instance. Some of you come from families in which not every member of your household is a follower of Christ. And all of us have extended family that don't yet believe in Jesus. And for those of you with young children, you've got sort of like a built-in in-house mission field. But especially those of you who labor to follow Christ in an unequally yoked marriage, or those of you who have grown children and who are unbelievers, I can't speak emphatically enough as to how vital it is to let your gentle spirit be made manifest to them. To be sure, your holy life is not sufficient to win sinners to Christ. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ, by the message about Christ, Romans 10, 17. Your life, no matter how holy and chaste and praiseworthy, is not the gospel. However, there is no greater way to undermine your own preaching of the gospel to your family than to unsay with your life what you say with your lips. And so all the flexibility, all of the the gentle demeanor, all of the patience, and all we talked about earlier, all of that must be aimed at them to show them that the gospel that you proclaim to believe and that you're preaching to them has the power not only to justify, but also to sanctify, that it's not just talk, but that Christ really has the power to transform your life. You tell the truth about the gospel when you live a transformed life before your family members and your unbelieving friends, and you lie about it when you don't. We've also got to manifest gentleness before unbelievers in our profession. So many of you work under unreasonable employers. And the Apostle Peter's admonition to servants is opposite to you. 1 Peter 2.18, Peter writes, servants, and we could insert, and employees, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, epia case, but also to those who are unreasonable. For this finds favor if for the sake of conscience toward God, a person bears up under or patiently forbears sorrows when suffering unjustly. For those employers who are not good and gentle, they're to learn gentleness by the example they see in the employees who name the name of Christ. And your coworkers, those who can't stand the fact that they have to work with someone so archaic, so xenophobic as to believe that the only way to get to heaven and avoid eternal punishment in hell is to believe in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. How inflexible. They can't stand the fact that they have to work with someone so bigoted and narrow-minded as to deny homosexuals the same right to marriage as heterosexuals enjoy. But friends, they expect narrow-minded bigots to be harsh 
and aggressive and always insisting upon their own way. But when they see a people who stand immovable upon their convictions on the one hand, but on the other hand, respond to trials with joy and thanksgiving, who when they are reviled, don't revile in return, who turn the other cheek and repay evil with good. When they see those people, they have no idea what to do with them. Bigots, narrow-minded exclusivists, yet gentle, pliable, patient, always in control of their temper, content even amidst mistreatment and misrepresentation. Now there's a way to shine like stars in the darkness of the night sky, as Paul says in Philippians 2.15. There's a way to shine like stars in the heavens. There's a way to adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior, in every respect. And there are numerous other arenas of life in which this applies. I wish that I could spend time talking about the way that we interact with our neighbors, the way that we interact with repairmen who providentially make their way into our home and have occasion to to be around an actual Christian, or the way that we just treat and, and interact with the cashiers at the supermarket, sowing seeds, trying to develop a relationship that we might even take that mundane thing and bring it in subjection to Christ. But I also need to mean the need for gentleness probably more importantly than all those, is, is in the need for gentleness in contending for the faith. As we take the gospel to our friends and neighbors, as we defend it against even those who are deceived, false teachers, or those simply teaching doctrine that is not true, we've got to contend for the faith, friends, but we need never be contentious for the faith. Contend without contentiousness. I can't think of anything more incongruous than a a follower of Christ dealing harshly with someone that they hope to see saved by the gospel. Martin Lloyd-Jones, again, he laments how difficult it is to differentiate between holy zeal or righteous indignation and the mere expression of a harsh, critical, judgmental spirit. We need to search our hearts and examine our lives Let your gentle spirit, not your critical spirit, be made known to all men. Let gentleness be your reputation, not criticism, not complaining, especially before those whom you mean to win to Christ. You say, Mike, if I'm gentle with all people, if I'm gentle, especially to those who don't belong to the household of faith, who are hostile to Christ and who would love nothing more than to make my life difficult for me, if I patiently endure ill treatment from them, they're going to learn fast that they can go on abusing me without fear of retaliation. I've got to stick up for myself, don't I? I mean, I I don't want to be a doormat. Well, my friend, that is not lost on the Apostle Paul. He was very much aware of the Philippian situation as they labored under the opposition and through conflict with the hostile pagan world that was around them. But it's precisely those hostile neighbors that Paul has in mind as he pens this command. They're watching the way these Christians respond to the pressures that they bring upon them. And fully cognizant of this hostile environment, Paul commands the people of God to be marked not only by a constant joyfulness, which would be enough by itself, you'd think, enough of a challenge, but by an eminent and demonstrable gentleness to all people, inside and outside the church, even and especially 
to those who mistreat us. But Paul, how can you say that? I mean, how in the world are we supposed to let our gentle and forbearing spirit be evident to all men, even those that would take advantage of us? I mean, how can we do that? And how thankful we can be that Paul never seems to lay upon the shoulders of the people of God a divine imperative without also laying under our feet a divine indicative upon which we can stand. In verse 4, he didn't merely command us to rejoice always, but to rejoice in the Lord always. The Lord himself is to be the source, sphere, object, and ground of our rejoicing, and that indicative stands under the imperative of rejoicing. Well, here also in verse 5, he doesn't merely command us, let your gentle spirit be made known to all men, but also adds, the Lord is near. And that brings us to our third point. We've examined the command in detail, and we've considered the scope of the command just a moment ago, but now we come to the ground and the incentive for our gentleness. How? How can we patiently endure the ill treatment of a hostile and perverse generation and consistently repay evil with good? How? How can we subject ourselves to the attacks of the enemies of Christ and the enemies of his gospel without becoming defensive and without asserting our rights? Paul says, the Lord is near. The Lord is near. This is the ground of our gentleness. Now, there is some debate between the commentators regarding precisely what Paul meant when he said the Lord is near. Does he mean the Lord is near in a spatial sense? The way we say that piano is near to me, that Christ is ever present with his people, that aware of your circumstances and, and able to come to your aid. People who take this view say that Paul is standing on the promise of Psalm 34, verse 18, which says, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. They say that he's treasuring the truth of Psalm 73, 28, which says, but as for me, the nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge. Well, certainly that would provide a ground and incentive to gentleness, to to know that at every moment, Jesus, your Savior, is with you, at your side, examining and scrutinizing your response to suffering and so giving you the, the highest, accountability, highest of accountability. He sees you, he's scrutinizing your behavior, but also is there to strengthen you and to comfort you and to tend to the wounds that you sustain on the path of obedience. That would certainly be encouragement and ground to be gentle. Or is Paul saying that the Lord is near in a temporal sense? The way we say shepherd's conference is near, that Christ will return soon and will bring vengeance upon the enemies of his people and will bring all of his good promises to his people to pass. Those who take this view note the similar exhortations from James, who says, you too be patient, strengthen your hearts for the coming of the Lord is near, James 5.8. And from Peter, who writes, the end of all things is near, therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit. And that would also seem to fit with the the eschatological tone set in the context in Philippians, where in chapter 3, verses 20 and 21, where we're entreated to eagerly await a Savior from heaven and look forward to the day when he will transform the body of our humble state into into conformity with the body of his glory. 
Certainly that would provide a ground, wouldn't it? An incentive to gentleness, to know that at any moment Christ is coming to vindicate our cause and that the shame that we bear in our persecution will soon be exchanged for the glory and honor of participating in Christ's victory. So which is it? Well, both interpretations are biblically and theologically accurate and correct. And so we, we may and should certainly draw strength from both of them to fuel our gentleness. Don't pick between these two. Take whatever fuel you can get for your gentleness. The Lord who may return at any moment to conquer our enemies and vindicate our faith is also the Lord who is near to his people at all times in the person of the Holy Spirit whom he himself has given us and made to indwell in us in order to guide and direct us into the path of holiness. Both are true. But though that's so, and both are valid sources of spiritual strength and stability, I believe that Paul had more in mind the temporal sense. Commentator William Hendrickson captures the thought well when he writes, the idea seems to be, since Christ's coming is near, when all the promises made to God's people will become realities, believers, in spite of being persecuted, And I'll add, in spite of being mistreated, whether from the inside of the church or the outside, can certainly afford to be mild and charitable in their relation to others. If Christ is coming to deliver his promises, you can afford to suffer a little injustice. So if Paul considers the coming of of our Lord to be a sufficient ground and incentive for the display of our gentleness of spirit, it's fitting that we should reflect on the reality that he's presented here and be stirred up to obedience. And so in our final minutes, I have just four brief reflections on the coming of the Lord that will strengthen us to endure all manner of affliction with gentleness. First, so four reflections on the coming of the Lord. First, the imminent return of the Lord Jesus teaches us that this world is not our home. This world is not our home. The promise of his coming reminds us that life is a vapor when it's compared to eternity. Just a cloud of warm breath that appears on a cold day and vanishes immediately. And so all the comforts and pleasures that get us so worked up that we're incapable of conducting ourselves with gentleness, all of those things are fading away. And why should we sacrifice obedience to our Lord, making withdrawals, as it were, from the bank account of eternity in order to invest in the the commodities of this world, which we know are headed for certain bankruptcy? Why would we sacrifice obedience, which is making a deposit in eternity, to invest in these things that are fading and are going to pass, that are not eternal? Our Lord taught us where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. If your treasure is stored up here on on an earth that is passing away fast, and if someone attacks your treasure, of course you're going to get anxious. Of course you're going to get uneasy. Of course you're going to get worked up and easily irritated and agitated. They're getting at your treasure. But if all of your treasure, all of your satisfaction, if all of it is in heaven, if your life is hidden with Christ in God, Colossians 3.3, then nothing can shake you. Because your treasure is hidden in the safest storehouse there is, God himself. And when nothing can touch your treasure, you become free like those early Hebrew Christians to joyfully accept the seizure of your property. Knowing what, does the text say? Knowing what? Knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. Oh, friends, the Lord is near. Let your gentleness be made manifest to all people. 
Secondly, the certain and soon coming of Christ reminds us that Christ himself is the judge of the world. Now, not only does this mean that we are not the judge of of others, but it also means that we're subject ourselves to the Lord's judgment. And though the world likes to rip this verse from its context and throw it in our face, we've got to remember its proper interpretation, Matthew 7, verse 2, for in the way that you judge, you will be judged, and by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. That's a sobering statement. So when you're tempted to lose patience, and when you cannot bear to forbear, when you're tempted to condemn others in harshness, devoid of the gentleness that characterized and does still characterize your Lord, remember that you yourself are a man or a woman under authority, that you yourself will be subject to his judgment. And given how sinful you know yourself to be, you've got to deeply desire him to be so forbearing and patient with you. I mean, isn't that true? Do you know yourself? And knowing yourself, can you be harsh with others if the standard you use will be measured to you? I don't want Jesus to be harsh with me. I want him to be gentle. I want him to be patiently forbearing. I want him to be ready to forgive. And so I ought to be that way with others. Very related to that, number three, the Lord's soon coming reminds us that he alone has the right to exact vengeance. Paul speaks so directly in Romans 12, 19, when he says, Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. And in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, Paul describes that vengeance specifically as it relates to the affliction of the church when he writes, for it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. And friends, so far from delighting in their destruction, these thoughts ought to make you tremble and weep for them. And as that godly compassion arises in your heart, gentleness has already begun to operate. And so we need to think vengeance is not mine to take, it's the Lord's and not All right, well, they're going to get there sooner or later. But they're going to suffer. What does it say? The penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. You can't think about that for too long. But if you do, there's a compassion that arises in your heart that will teach you and will spur you on to be gentle. And finally, the most glorious reality that the Lord has promised, that his promised coming confronts us with is that our reward is certain. Our reward is certain. In Hebrews 11.25, the writer tells us that Moses chose to endure ill treatment. Now, that's what we're talking about. He chose to endure ill treatment with the people of God rather than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin that he considered the reproach of Christ to be greater riches than the treasures of Egypt. And then it tells us why he was able to do that. For he was looking to the reward. 
Moses was able to raise the eyes of his heart above the passing pleasures of this transient, fading world and fix them on his unseen Savior and to fix them on the glory that was to be his when he would be taken to heaven to live in fellowship with him. Friends, there is such joy and such glory wrapped up in the person of Christ who is sure to be yours at his coming, which is only a few short moments away. The Lord is near. Therefore, we do not lose heart, Paul says, though our outer man patiently forbears with gentleness the abuse of those both inside and outside the church. Yet our inner man is being renewed day by day for what the Bible calls momentary and light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. When, what, under what circumstances, while we look not at the things which are seen, but of the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. So Peter exhorts the suffering Christians in the churches under his care to fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Christ Jesus, 1 Peter 1.13. Set your heart on that day. Fix your eyes on that day. Think of what it will be to spend eternity with Jesus in just a short while to enter into the joy of your master and enjoy his glorious presence, the pleasures that are at his right hand forevermore. And as you do, let those thoughts engender in you the spirit of gentleness that characterizes the true child of God. And let that spirit of gentleness, of forbearance, of patience, let that be evident to all men. So with all the opposition that you face and will face from an increasingly secular, increasingly hostile society, how are you, the church, how are you going to stand firm in the Lord? How are you going to do it? You're going to be diligently devoted to unity. You're going to be passionately committed to pursuing your greatest joy in the Lord. And you're going to let your gentle and forbearing spirit be made manifest to all people, no matter the cost, because the Lord is near. And he, and he alone, friends, he is our great reward. Father, we thank you for this truth, all this truth that is wrapped up in this tiny exhortation and this tiny ground of encouragement. You are near. And Lord, would you speed the day of your coming? Would you come into your kingdom and get what you're worthy of on this earth and from your people? And in the meantime, may we, grounded and fueled by that promise of your coming, may we be characterized by a spirit of gentleness. May we be unified. May we be seeking all of our joy in you so that we might stand firm against these pressures. We don't want to fade. We don't want to sink. We don't want to bend. We don't want to fall. We want to be resolutely committed. We want to stand on the rock of biblical truth. We don't want to waver. We want to show how valuable you are and how valuable your son is that we can remain committed to you when we're threatened with loss of everything. May it not just be words, Father. May it not just be rhetoric. May it not just be hype from a preacher. Make it the desire of our hearts. Make us these kinds of people and show us that it starts with being gentle to one another. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. For more information about the ministry of the Grace Life Pulpit, visit at www.thegracelifepulpit.com. Copyright by the Grace Life Pulpit, all rights reserved.